Hello and welcome to The Curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage here on Monaco 24. This week, we discuss Australia's first referendum in almost a quarter of a century. It does speak to the enormity of this referendum, how important it is for so many people. And the Prime Minister does carry a really huge weight on his shoulders. Obviously, he wants to see this referendum succeed. But if it were to fail, well, the consequences would be quite great. Plus, a cool publication from Beirut. The theme of the next issue is tongues. and Tongues? Tongues, yeah. So, you know, like when things that are related to translation, things that are related to... Uh, language, but also the tongue as an organ of the body and the organ that you use in order to communicate and in order to make yourself heard, but also an organ that is sensual and that is sexual. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And we start the show in Australia, which is holding its first referendum in almost 25 years. And now we know what the question is. Australians will be asked whether the nation's indigenous people, which make up 3.2% of the population, should be recognized in the Constitution. For more, Monaco's Emma Nelson spoke with Isabella Higgins, Europe correspondent for ABC News. To be very clear, because I was asked this question this morning, Are there any circumstances in which this will not be put to a vote? The answer to that is no. Because to not put this to a vote so to not put this to a vote is to concede defeat. You only win when you run on the field and engage. And let me tell you, my government is engaged. We're all in. I'm joined now by Isabella Higgins, who's Europe correspondent for ABC News. Welcome, Isabella. And thanks for having me. Now, we just heard in Alison Albanese there getting choked up in a highly emotional announcement, which is something that suggests that he, he carries this very personally and very deeply. Well, that's right. This press conference, it wasn't your average press conference that you see happening in Parliament House in Australia. It was really emotional. The Prime Minister was choking on his words throughout the course of this, and he was surrounded by some of the most prominent Indigenous Australians who had tears running down their faces. His Minister for Indigenous Australians, she was crying through much of this press conference. And it does speak to the enormity of this referendum, how important it is for so many people. And the Prime Minister does carry a really huge weight on his shoulders. Obviously, he wants to see this referendum succeed. But if it were to fail, well, the consequences would be quite great. The reason there is such an enormity to this is because this process has been going on for such a long time in earnest for three political terms governments, Indigenous Australians have been talking about what a referendum would look like, what it would look like to enshrine an Indigenous voice. But this idea of recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the first Australians and recognising that in the founding document, that's something that's been discussed for decades and decades. Those people who stood around the Prime Minister as he made this announcement All of them have been involved in government inquiries that look into the high rates of child removals from their families, 
for Aboriginal families, looking at the reasons why Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are more likely to die in prison. All of them have worked in this space. They've lived this for their entire life. And this for them is the moment where they draw the line in the sand. We kept hearing that being said at the at the press conference. This is the line in the sand. This is our chance to have a voice. This is our chance to have a say. And we ask the Australian public to walk with us on this journey for such a long time. Many of them would tell you the Australian government has made laws for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And now this represents an opportunity for the Australian government to work with First Nations people. That's what all of the people in that room will tell you. So to finally have the wording, to see the proposed changes to the constitution, it represented a really significant development in what has been a years-long fight. The the ambition is huge, the intention is huge, the will is huge, but now that we have the wording of, of this referendum question, it, it talks about enshrining Indigenous voices in the constitution, allowing the Indigenous, or enabling the Indigenous population to have a say. What exactly does that look like? Well, that is something that remains to be seen, and this has been... The question that many people have been asking for years and years and years, explain to us what this will look like. And we have some idea about what that will look like. We know that it will be a democratic process where Indigenous Australians will elect their representatives, that they will represent the different states of Australia, that they will represent regional and remote parts of the country, that they will not just be... uh, elders from the community that will also have positions for youth. Now, this constitution, this, uh, sorry, this referendum, it gives the government the power to legislate what that is going to look like. So we have details to some extent about how that is going to work. Some details need to be worked out further. There have been several reports done by an Indigenous working group uh, proposing several different models. It's really now for Aboriginal people to decide who they elect, how they want it to look. And the government, the Indigenous working group have said time and time again, we want communities to tell us who they want to represent us in Australian halls of power. So Australians have some detail about what this is going to look like, but as you may have got the sense, it's a little bit ambiguous at the moment. And that causes a bit of worry for some people who think it may be that reason that Australians feel unsure or uncertain and don't want to push this over the line. The the interesting thing there, you're talking about unsureness, lack of sureness and uncertainty. Um, when Australia holds rec- referendums, they don't necessarily pass. Is, is there a guarantee that this will go through or are there still dissenting voices in what seems to be a very clear cut idea? There's no guarantee that this will pass, and that is perhaps why we heard the Prime Minister so emotional. That's why he's such a huge weight on his shoulders. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people aren't one homogenous group. There is certainly dissent even within the Indigenous population about whether this is the best way forward. You've got the political opposition party, some significant figures in the opposition are for it, some significant figures in the opposition aren't for it, some are not really coming forth with a strong view. So you don't have clear bipartisanship on this. And many people will tell you in Australia for a referendum to be successful that you need bipartisanship. Uh, 
when we look back at the history of referendums in Australia, most of them aren't successful. So this isn't a guarantee at all. And that is why it's such an enormous moment. It's a really huge weight for the people who are driving this, because we know often as well that if referendums don't succeed, well, they kind of stay dead in the water for a long time. The last referendum was in 1999 that was asking Australia if it wanted to become a republic. When that vote failed, that that debate in Australia has more or less died. It hasn't really come back to the surface in a meaningful way. It comes up from time to time. But the Republican movement died after that referendum after it failed. So there's a lot of concern amongst the Indigenous population about what happens if this isn't successful. There's a lot of concern clearly for the government about what happens if this isn't successful. The past two governments in Australia didn't want to take this to a vote. They were pushing for a legislated model, a model where the Australian government of the day could legislate a voice that it would exist, but it wouldn't have that constitutional enshrinement. So it's certainly not a guarantee. We don't know when exactly the referendum will be, yet it's looking like it's going to be sometime after September, but within this year. So there's a lot of work to be done to win over the hearts and minds of Australians. Isabella, how does it affect you as a citizen? I myself am part of the 3% of Australians who recognise themselves as a First Nations person. Uh, My family come from some small islands called the Torres Strait uh, on the very far northern tip of Australia. We're very proud of our culture, a seafaring culture, people who have a really close connection to the water and the islands in which we're from. Uh, Growing up, it it's not always easy to be an Indigenous person in Australia, to be completely frank with you. There's plenty of racism. Most Indigenous families have stories about people dying too young because of the health inequities in our country. They have stories about children being removed from their families, uh, stories about young people committing suicide. That's the reality of being an Indigenous person in Australia is that Indigenous and Aboriginal people are sicker, they are poorer, they are more likely to end up in prison, they're less likely to finish school because of the history of colonisation due to the fact that cultures, societies and families have been broken apart to build the nation of Australia as it stands today. So this referendum for myself, for my family, it represents a real change. It represents a moment to change history. Um, I should say that, you know, even within my own family, there are plenty of views within my family about this referendum, whether it's the best idea, what they want. Uh, There is a really big argument within the Indigenous community that they would like to see a treaty between Aboriginal people and the Commonwealth Government. That's been a really big source of contention within the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. People who say, we want a treaty. We don't want an enshrined voice. We don't want to be part of Australia. We want to be recognised for our own sovereignty over these lands as the world's oldest continuing culture. So it's a monumental moment for, for me, for my family, and for the nation. So there's no sense, even if this referendum were to, to, to go through, that you and your family would get a, would enjoy a more fair and uh, an equal society? This isn't the end of the road. This is the beginning of a journey. It's the beginning of a new relationship where Indigenous people can work 
more closely with the government where they can have more say over their affairs, where they can have more agency over the laws that affect them. This certainly isn't a panacea. It's not a silver bullet that's going to change everything. There were really real entrenched problems in Australia that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people face. And this is just one mechanism to try and change that, to start making things better for the next generation. And now to Colombia. In 2022, Colombia's president, Gustavo Petro, introduced his Total Peace concept, a plan intended to encourage criminal gangs to compromise with the government. Andrew Muller explains how recent events have impeded such ambitions. I now call on the Nobel Peace Prize laureate of 2016 to step forward to receive the diploma and the gold medal. The 2016 Nobel Prize for Peace was awarded to Juan Manuel Santos, then President of Colombia, in recognition of his efforts to end Colombia's interminable internal conflict with various tedious narco-Marxist guerrilla groups. If you'll forgive the crashing cross-promotional plug, you can hear President Santos talking all about this and more besides in episode 343 of The Foreign Desk and episode 142 of The Big Interview, both well worth a listen in the admittedly partial opinion of this broadcaster. This week, however, Colombia's current president, Gustavo Petro, announced that Colombia was going back to war with one particular mob of tiresome gangsters who trade as the Gulf Clan. President Petro announced that the Gulf Clan had breached a ceasefire agreement and that they were, quote, sowing anxiety and terror, unquote. Specifically, Gulf Clan were accused of conspiring with illegal gold miners to blow up an aqueduct and shooting at police officers. If the Clan del Golfo is behind this, as everything points towards, then they have no desire for peace. Instead, in their minds what they have desire to is to defend the illegal economies like mining and drug trafficking. La minería o el narcotráfico. President Petro instructed Colombia's security forces to get after them. On Tuesday, Colombia's army claimed it had killed two Gulf Clan members and captured a local leader. An off-duty soldier died in apparent retaliatory action by the clan. There will doubtless be more where this came from. Probably the best place to start here is with the peace agreement which won Santos his Nobel Prize. By 2016, Colombia's civil war had been grinding on for half a century in one form or another, and negotiations to end it for nearly half that half century. The deal eventually done between Colombia's government and the largest and most pestilential of the guerrilla groups, the Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias de Colombia, better known and carefully pronounced as FARC, was flawed and muddled, but then pretty much all peace agreements are. If there had been no need for compromise, there would not have been a conflict. In our constitution, one of the obligations of every citizen, starting with the president, is to seek peace. And uh, some people uh, think that uh, the peace can be achieved by killing the last member of the FARC. And that is not uh, possible, and this is not the way. Colombians were unsure about it. 
When the initial deal, which included supporting FARC's transition into party politics, was put to the people in a referendum, it was rejected, surprisingly, if narrowly, on a wretchedly low turnout. Many Colombians remained understandably disinclined to offer FARC any kind of reward for deigning to knock their nonsense off and abide by the laws that everyone else did, a common obstacle in forging such agreements. I called on you to decide, if you back or not, the accords to end the conflict with the FARC. And the majority has said no, albeit by a very narrow margin. Now we are all together going to decide between the path that we should take so that peace, this peace that we all want, is possible and to come out of this stronger. I will not give up. No me rendiré. Nevertheless, a revised deal was signed and ratified by Congress without asking the voting public what they made of the alterations. FARC rebranded as the political party now known as Commons. They currently hold five seats each in both the House of Representatives and the Senate, a quota guaranteed them until 2026 by the peace deal and are part of the governing coalition. But while FARC were the biggest Colombian paramilitary outfit, they were far from the only bunch of intransigent ratbags at large in Colombia's jungles. And some, indeed, were only too happy to fill the gap in the market, which appeared when FARC went more or less legit. Enter the Gulf Clan. At least 25 officers have been killed so far this year. Dozens more have been injured in attacks using firearms and explosives. Colombians have mourned the dead in vigils nationwide. Based in Uraba, Antioquia, which cradles the Gulf of Uraba near Colombia's border with Panama, the Gulf Clan has become Colombia's biggest and best-armed cartel. Estimates of the degree to which they have cornered Colombia's cocaine trade vary between 30 and 60 percent, despite the significant blows occasionally landed upon them. In 2012, clan boss Juan de Dios Usuga was killed by Colombian police. In October 2021, his successor and brother, Dairo Antonio Usuga, known as Otoniel, was captured by Colombia's military and later extradited to the United States. In January, he pleaded guilty, is awaiting sentence, and the betting hovers around the 20-year figure. But the Gulf clan persist. When President Petro was elected in 2022, he promised a new approach to dealing with Colombia's armed groups, heavier on the carrots, lighter on the stick. We call on all those who are armed to leave their arms in the haze of the past, to accept legal benefits in exchange for peace. There was some hope that the less boastworthy aspects of Petro's own CV might actually be an advantage in forging understanding. As a young man under the nom de guerre Aureliano, he carried a gun with the revolutionary group M19 and spent 18 months in prison as a consequence. M19 were eventually persuaded to pack it in in favour of embracing party politics. President Petro may have hoped for similar results from what he optimistically declared his total peace plan. The good-ish news is that part of Petro's total peace plan does still seem to be on track. Colombia's oldest active paramilitary group, the indefatigable Guevaraist weirdos the National Liberation Army, or ELN, are continuing tentative peace talks. 
and the stakes remain considerable. Last year, Colombia's Truth Commission, established by President Santos's peace deal, reckoned that six decades of ebbing and flowing civil war had killed at least 450,644 people. The gruesome euphemism, disappeared, was applied to 120,768 more, all of which is to say nothing of immeasurable injury, trauma and displacement. Colombians obviously do not want a return to any of this, but the bad news is that the Gulf clan may not much care whether Colombia returns to this or not. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And for Monaco On Culture this week, we take a trip to Southeast London to celebrate the release of the charming new film Rye Lane. Writers Nathan Bryan and Tom Malia joins us in the studio to discuss their working relationship, influences and the desire to create a great rom-com. Because it's a tough one. I mean, everyone, everyone's got, everyone knows that kind of like you're writing or something and it's version 99 or oh. something. But it felt like, to me, in a very good way and very unwritten film. Mm. You don't want to hear that because you've written it, you've poured over it and you've laboured over it. Blood, sweat and tears have gone into Rye Lane from you two guys. But it seems like exceptionally natural. You've got two great performers doing mm-hmm. your work. But tell us a bit about that. About, I, I mean, I hope you agree with me. Maybe you don't. But no. whether that is a mark of quality for a, for I, I, a, for a yeah. rom-com particularly. Maybe. I think that's a huge compliment. So thank you very much. You can say it again. Because <laughs> you, you, you want your writing to roll off the tongue. You want mm. your writing to feel unlabored. You want the audience to listen and feel like Tom and I haven't been like, oh, my God, how do we put this sentence together? You, it's important. So I, I, thank you very much. <laughs> no, I agree. We, we are dialogue guys. Like We yeah, often yeah. got told through this process maybe less work. Words, please um, and I also think there is a there's like a happy marriage where we got the right actors for mm-hmm. this yeah. and they make our words sound good but we certainly set out to make it feel like these are two people speaking naturally meeting for the first time doing that thing in that you do in conversations where you try and curate yourself a little bit yeah and it took a lot to get to that point to get to the point where you gave us that lovely compliment and said it sounded almost um improvised that's yeah. kind of what we wanted yeah. and, and as well as like you know there's a lot of South London slang in our film like that's really important to keep up to date with the slang like slang's changing every day slang's <laughs> changing as we're speaking right now yeah. so as we're you know drafting you know no uh, one says slang anymore. No one says slang anymore? No, no. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. What do they call it? <laughs> oh, God. Am I going to get cancelled for this? No. But, like, we, you know, we started writing this. Uh, my friend sent me a, a message this morning that um, we sent him the first draft five years ago. Right. Slang changed in five years, man. So, yeah. like, I, I was a big part of the drafting process as well. Tom and I, like, updating different bits and making sure that, you know, when the film comes out, people aren't like, what? No one says that? Yeah. You know, and so it's important. And also, one thing that we discussed a lot is our pet peeve in things where if you're watching a film and there's an ensemble and you're told that they're best friends who have known each other for years and years and years and you can tell that they met a week ago in a casting call I think that is especially hard if you're watching a rom-com and you can tell that these two actors have only met recently and don't have any 
dynamic and don't have any relationship or attraction. And of course, that is the case. People can't spend a year together before they're in a film. So it's our job to make sure that their characters feel... Have that sort of ease and intimacy. Mm. Yes, It's written exactly. in. It's feel, literally written into it. And yeah. feel like real people and feel like they're sparking off each other and feel like they speak like fully formed human beings. And then the actors come on and make it even better and amplify all that stuff. You've You've kind of jumped into sort of hostile territory with the rom-com because it's tough to do it well it looks easy and also it's one of those things like comedy or pure comedy it's very difficult to do it but everyone thinks it's easy to do it somehow perhaps you know punters you know person in you know row 13d will kind of go okay you know it's got a lot of kind of hoops it has to jump through to sort of satisfy an audience i suppose so tell us how you what's the special source i mean is it do you riff on stuff are there do you is this overheard on the bus stuff do you have a huge do you each have a huge notebook of kind of accidental aphorisms that you know your, your family and friends have given you how, do, how what's the kind of meat and potatoes I at mean, the beginning of it Tom has some amazing anecdotes that he... when I said meat and potatoes I was referring to your lunch oh, don't no, get sleepy no no I was, oh my god that's <laughs> off no uh, and, um, yeah <laughs> but Tom uh, he brought some amazing anecdotes to the film which are very much in the film and I won't name them because they're probably from you know people that could be listening well you're about to do that thing where you're like and Tom's a great singer go yeah, no 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 because no, you have to see it but there's there's lots of things that we've gathered you know like writing is essentially my mum always says don't tell Nathan anything he'll put it in the script and I will and I'll get paid off it, God damn it. So be careful what you tell me. But there's definitely, I would say, we, we gather loads of little bits from, you know, people in life that we meet. And also, you're right, we, when we decided that we wanted to write a rom-com, it was as much because we love rom-coms, uh, but it was also a challenge because people have seen these films and it's a strange balance where you need to feel new and you need to feel like you're doing something fresh with the genre, but also... People want what they went in for. They want some of those tropes. You need to yeah. sort of hit, right? I suppose. And, and, yeah. and sometimes people will point those out and say, "Oh, it, it." Sometimes it falls into familiar territory. But if you don't put those things mm. in, then you're not giving people that that endorphin rush that they mm-hmm. expect from these films. So it is a balancing act yeah. that we were very aware of as we went in. Like another sort of big element early doors was that I I definitely wanted to create a, a rom com where I could exist. Quite often in rom coms, the amazing one the not so good ones it's the sort of life where I haven't seen myself I haven't seen my social group and I really wanted to show the sort of specific London that I live in with the little bougie cocktails we might have a little bougie cocktail then we might rock up to a playground and we will 100% be getting the free booze at the art gallery and then leaving and not buying anything that is the sort of London we. no no one's too good for that yeah listen that's it it. if it's on I'm like "Mm, I love it I love it I cannot afford it (laughs) Um, so it was a sort of like just bringing all those little moments and trying to make it as specific to the sort of, you know, life we've lived. And I'm really just putting a massive spotlight on Black Joy, man. Like, just a joyous film where you can feel safe and, like, fall in love, I think. You are listening to The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And this week, Ottawa welcomed U.S. President Joe Biden. It was the American leader's first official visit to the country since taking office. So what's in store for this bilateral relationship? For more, we have our correspondent in Toronto, Thomas Lewis, and he filed this report. Visits by a U.S. president to Canada have a storied history. 
It would seem Canadians see America's new president as a change they're pretty excited about. On his first foreign visit since taking office, Barack Obama got a welcome that belied the iciness of the weather. Tradition has it that Canada is the first international destination for a visit by a new US president. But that convention has been upended twice in recent years. First, by former President Donald Trump, who opted to go to Saudi Arabia as the location of his first foray abroad. I have always heard about the splendor of your country and the kindness of your citizens. But words do not do justice to the grandeur of this remarkable place. And more recently, by pandemic-era travel restrictions that were in place at the time of Joe Biden's inauguration in January 2021. President Biden did nonetheless nod to that tradition by making Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau the first world leader he spoke to upon entering the White House, a relationship that's been reiterated at subsequent meetings between the two in Washington and elsewhere. Canadians and Americans are innovative, creative, entrepreneurial, competitive, open-hearted and rights-respecting. There's nothing we cannot achieve when we commit ourselves to it. And when we work together, as the closest of friends should, we only make each other stronger. Because this is such an enormous relationship that deals with trade, it deals with security matters, it deals with people crossing borders, it's um, hard to really know where to start. Herschel Esrin is a Canadian former diplomat in both New York and Los Angeles and is currently a distinguished visiting professor at Toronto's Metropolitan University. Canada and the United States have, I think, the, uh, in the past year, a trillion dollars of trade in goods and services. And they have uh, something like 400,000 people who daily cross the longest undefended border in the world, which is some 9,000 kilometers long. In any way that you can imagine it, Canada and the United States could probably have 20 or 30 issues going on at any given time, some of them niggling, some of them significant. And uh, having uh, President Biden come to Canada is a way to see if you can advance or some progress on some of those issues. For example, how do you renew and strengthen the North American aerospace defense arrangements? We had this Chinese set of balloons, or at least one, maybe more, um, that came over Alaska, Canada, and uh, NORAD was very much involved in this, and that's an issue. Elsewhere on the agenda, there are two key areas that are likely to loom large. For the US, it will be to emphasize Joe Biden's foreign policy priority as president to counter China's influence. That may prove somewhat complicated territory for Prime Minister Trudeau, who has been criticised at home for his response to allegations that China meddled in several recent elections in Canada. But one role that Canada might play in Biden's agenda is the opening of rare mineral mines, as sources for minerals that are used in the manufacturing of batteries or mobile phones, for example, of which China is currently a dominant supplier. For Canada, it will be President Biden's economic focus on his so-called Made in America agenda, which Trudeau's government will want clarity on, particularly its impact on areas like Canadian car manufacturing, which is intertwined with its counterpart manufacturers in the US, as Besma Mamani, a professor of international politics at Canada's University of Waterloo, explains. Where Trump was overtly protectionist, uh, Biden is protectionist light. 
in that it has very much the same tone and sense of protectionism that we saw with the Trump administration. It's not nearly as in your face. It's got a softer tone. Some of that was sorted out, thankfully, through negotiations over the USMCA or the, or the NAFTA 2.0. But I don't think Canadians feel reassured that that special place that Canada-US relations had in the minds of the US administration really resonate anymore. And I think that's beyond just Biden. Biden is, is I think, just the figurehead of here, but there's a broader populist nationalist sentiment in the United States, which does have an America first agenda. And so, yes, there is, I think, genuine and real worry that uh, the United States will become less and less hospitable to Canadian businesses. Even though Donald Trump is not president, Trumpism and the entire polarization that we see in the United States is still finding its way across to the border. And that we saw, for example, the truck convoy, where there's enormous evidence that this was at least, if not you know, completely or partially funded by many American interests, uh, there was absolutely a shared ecosystem of social media where much of the fire under the belly of this convoy movement came from the United States. And so that eagerness to kind of go back to the way things were um, is a bit of a fallacy. I think there's enormous fear and suspect that Trumpism will return and that we need to keep our cards close to our chest. And while Canada is absolutely more comfortable with a Biden presidency than a Trumpist presidency, we don't think that, you know, Trumpism is dead yet. And for Herschel Ezrin, the former diplomat, maintaining a stable relationship with its neighbour to the south will, for whoever is in power in Ottawa, remain the priority. If you say the United States, it's the single most critical issue for any Canadian government and for any Canadian parliamentarian, prime minister, etc. And managing that relationship becomes uh, paramount. And if you think about it, why is Canada so involved in international organizations? Because they're looking for ways as what we call a middle power to balance off this asymmetrical relationship that we have with the United States. And so any place where you can find a way of balancing that allows you, and, and you try to do it through CERT, which is a uh, trade with the uh, European Union. You're trying to do it now in the Indo-Pacific, although the Americans were first out and then in, and now you're working with them again. So any way you can find to balance that relationship works. Canada and the United States are each other's closest allies, most important trading partners, and oldest friends. The assessment of the current state of that oldest of friendships will begin as soon as Air Force One touches down for the first time of the Biden presidency in Canada's capital city a little later today. And I know our bond will grow even stronger. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you, Joe, for your leadership, for your engagement, and thank you in advance for all the great work we're going to be doing together. Merci, thank mon you, ami. Justin. Au revoir. For Monocle in Toronto, I'm Thomas Lewis. 
and now we're heading to Austria, where, after years of legal and moral wrangling, the house where Adolf Hitler was born looks set to finally be repurposed. The building in the small town of Braunau, near the German border, will become a police station. Refurbishment work is set to start later this year. Austrian officials have labeled this a neutralization of the site, but an initiative group of artists and architects says it amounts to a suppression of memory of Austria's Nazi past and has called for a critical reevaluation of the project. Monikos Alexei Korolev has more. Um, we've been discussing the official way of dealing with the birth house of Hitler and had the feeling that it lacks the public discourse, so um, we started it. The building in Braunau was always going to be a problem. It didn't help that for decades after the Second World War, Austria denied its complicity in Nazi crimes. But when it finally came clean in the 1990s, the problem, the building, was still there. Official Austria had admitted and had, after really a long, long period of denial, said, yes, we are, we are guilty, but there is a step to be taken. Anna Paul is a founding member of Discourse Architektur, a group of Austrian architects that want to see more open discussion about the building. Austria is planning to rebuild or renovate or um, do something with the birthplace of Hitler. And now at this point, the way Austria, the official Austria is acting is they are planning a built denial. The, if you look at all the information and documents regarding the architectural competition and also the very important commission statement which was put in place by um, then Interior Minister Sobotka, if you look through all those documents, it becomes clear that the remembrance should be taken away from this birthplace. Architect Gabu Heindl took part in the competition, but later withdrew for that very same reason. My entire office, including me, uh, was really eager in uh, participating Within our office, we've been working a lot in um, memory politics, in public space, uh, with architecture, dealing with the question of like to what extent um, buildings are witnesses, uh, especially with National Socialist time. So, uh, yeah, we applied. But then um, after we received um, the much more deeply um, formulated um, brief, we understood that there wasn't really any way to navigate um, outside the idea of um, turning this building into a police station. And since there wasn't any openness also for a, a larger debate or discussion, where we couldn't see a way to really um, engage kind of in a, in a deeper sense um, with the, the starting point, we were through. This lack of openness about the past is something that Austria has long been notorious for. A museum in Vienna called the House of Austrian History is dedicated to setting the record straight. Um, my name is Laura Langida and I'm a historian and heritage researcher and I'm a junior collections curator at the House of Austrian History. Well, the house in Braunau, it's the birth house of Adolf Hitler. Um, Hitler himself, he only lived there for a couple of weeks, I think. After that, the family um, moved to another house. It was not the family's house, it was a boarding house and they had like rented a room there. 
And I think when he was a very young child, he moved to Germany altogether and then back to Austria, of course, but it's like no continuous part of his biography. However, during the Nazi regime, when um, the Nazi party also gained power in Austria, it was used by Nazi propaganda and they staged a nursery there and they made it a tourism hotspot. After the war, it was used for a couple of different things, mostly very uh, ordinary things, like it housed school classrooms for a while, it housed a library and I think a bank branch. And so a couple of years ago, in 2016, the house was seized by the Austrian government because the former owner, she was um, uncooperative um, when it came to finding a purpose for the house. But what makes the house especially complicated is that it's not actually a place of crime. It's not a place where something could be commemorated as nothing really happened there. The current plan to turn it into a police station has drawn widespread criticism, not least because the Austrian police itself has an image problem. Architect Gabu Heindl. The problem is not so much that it's the authentic birth house of Adolf Hitler. The problem is much more what it had become later on by the celebration of, um, of course, by the Nazis themselves, um, but even later and up until today, admiration and visits uh, of neo-Nazis um, uh, celebrating this this house. However, and that's really now the crucial part, to turn it into a police station in Austria, where the police is exactly that institution um, that um, has an issue itself with um, being close to right-wing connotations sometimes, and I'm not trying to actually now um, speak of the entire police, but uh, there's um, a, its own history that the police has to deal with, and it cannot be the remedy to neutralize, so to say, a place that um, that comes along with um, uh, current uh, neo-Nazi manifestations. So what can be the remedy? And how do you deal with a building whose only fault is that it briefly accommodated the newborn Adolf Hitler. A last word to Laura Langeda at the House of Austrian History. I think it doesn't matter whether it gets changed or it gets demolished or it stays the way it is. I think what is really important is to make it publicly accessible, to try to get rid of the taboo around the house um, and make it a subject of public discussion. I think those are the most important aspects of finding a way of dealing with the house. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. You are listening to The Curator, and now a highlight of the show I host, The Stack, about the world of magazines. Marcus Hippie, while traveling in Beirut, spoke to Hatan Iman from Journal Safar, one of the coolest titles in the region. Basically, the, when we started the studio, the design studio, we, Maya and I were adamant on having a component of publishing and this was for essentially two main reasons one of them is because we wanted not only to work for commissioned clients but also to do our own research into visual culture and to actually publish around this topic because there is obviously a huge lack of literature on uh, design and visual culture in the region. So tell me more about what you set out to achieve and what you've done so far you talk about this 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 criticism and, and those visual aspects, but what do they mean in practice? 
Essentially, you know, we studied graphic design here in Beirut, both of us, and we studied graphic design in textbooks that were written by North Americans or European uh, authors. And they were writing a particular kind of history of design. But the reality in the street, what we see, the signs around us, the books that we've read, you know, the television, the ads, the posters, all of this kind of, um, you know, like baggage of, of, of visual culture was something that was never in our textbooks. Uh, so we wanted to bridge this gap somehow. And how have you done it? What are some of the favorite things you've done so far? <laughs> I mean, we, when we started off, it was really an, a, quite an experiment for us. We were trying to understand how, you know, like, or to, to find a language with which we could actually speak about these things because, you know, we're, we were not design writers or, or researchers per se. But with time, we started finding our language and, you know, some of the most exciting pieces of writing that, that came out in, in the journal are the ones that spill out of only the design discipline that, that has, you know, like impact or that has also readership uh, with people who are not necessarily designers or who are familiar with graphic design per se. In issue five, under the theme of migrations, we talked about uh, migrant domestic workers who work under a, a terrible and unjust a system called kafala, which is compared to a kind of contemporary or modern age uh, slavery uh, for domestic workers who come to Lebanon and many other Arab countries and work under, you know, like terrible conditions. So this topic uh, was very important for us politically and socially, but also we were, we were talking about it through the lens of visual culture. So, so this is one of the very important, let's say, topics or pieces that were um, covered in Journal Safar. You talk about visual culture and the kind of visual culture you didn't see in your textbooks and, and in the mainstream. Are we talking about some kind of a Lebanese visual culture in this case, or what is it that you wanted to showcase to the world? I mean, I'm not interested in nationalism or, you know, like talking about any particular or any kind of exceptionalism related to, let's say, Lebanon or any other country. What I'm basically talking about is, you know, like in every city of the world, there is a, you know, like particular uh, flavor. There's a particular set of, you know, or, or a particular language that is used and understood by people who live in that city. And this is something that, you know, like it's important to to look at. It's important to look at locality. It's important to look at community, you know, like to look at what people are using to communicate with each other, how you and your neighbor can understand something because you live on the same street, which, you know, like someone who lives in Paris will, will not necessarily understand. Now, where does the ins inspiration come from? I'm wondering what kind of meetings do you have in, in the beginning when you're designing a new edition of the magazine? It's actually quite, you know, like effervescent. It's so exciting to, to work on this, on this magazine. We sit together and, you know, like each one of us comes up with the ideas or the, the things that have caught their attention or that they've been thinking about. And we start developing these ideas together until we, you know, like reach a particular theme. And from there, we start thinking, you know, like, what could we talk about in relation to this theme? And this is how we kind of, like, test if the theme is versatile and robust enough for us to actually commit to it. And then, you know, like, each, each person might suggest an author or, or a particular strand of research to, to look into. And this is how we develop, you know, like, the blueprint of the magazine. 
Do you have ideas for the next edition yet? We do. <laughs> we have we have our theme already. <laughs> I'm not sure if I... <laughs> I, I A world I, premiere. <laughs> <laughs> the theme of the next issue is tongues. and Tongues? Tongues, yeah. So, you know, like when... Thinking about like this kind of... Like when, when we say speaking in tongues, when we say tongue-tied, when we say, you know, like things that are related to translation, things that are related to... Uh, language, uh, but also the tongue as an organ of the body and the organ that you use in order to communicate and in order to make yourself heard, but also an organ that is sensual and that is sexual. So I think that tongues are quite loaded and we're looking at, you know, like a, a, a bunch of uh, different possibilities of thinking about the tongue. What have you learned about the art of um, creating magazines so far over the years? Was it natural? Was it easy in the beginning? Or were there some things you had to learn? No, no, it wasn't natural at all. I mean, it was, it was always enjoyable, but th there's a lot of things that you learn. I mean, because I'm trained as a graphic designer, so I kind of have, you know, like enough, let's say, experience with publications, how to deal with a publication, how to think about a publication, not only in terms of the content of this publication, but also in its form you know, like as an object, as a texture, as a kind of binding, as, you know, like all of these things that have a lot of significance and also in relation to the readership, who am I addressing, etc. But working with magazines has taught me also a lot about how to think collaboratively with other people and how to seriously think of an audience in a different way than, let's say, a book would. You know, a book has a different kind of lifespan or a different kind of uh, circulation than, than a magazine, and particularly a magazine that is specialized in, you know, like in, in a particular subject such as ours. Do you think creating journals so far has also made business sense? Has it helped you to spread the word about your studio so far? I mean, at the beginning, and still until now, uh, Studio Safar is the, is the one who funds the magazine. But over the years, the magazine has actually, yes, brought, you know, like brought some, a lot of uh, exposure of, for our work and interest for our work. So, yes, I would say that, you know, the magazine is paying the studio back somehow. And what is the studio busy with at the moment when we're doing this interview? What's in the pipeline? The studio is like... More and more with the years, we are uh, specializing, I would say, mainly in two fields. One of them is the communication, like exhibition design and communication design for, for art events and art exhibitions like biennials and, and the like, and also with communication strategies. So right now we are working on a major exhibition in South Africa and a bunch of communication strategies for, for cultural institutions, and remember that I am on sabbatical right now. So, <laughs> How careful do you have to be when you think about those topics and, and all the things that are on the page? Is, is there something to, to steer away from? Of course, I mean, we were young and foolish and we published everything that we wanted to publish. We were almost, I mean, except maybe in very, very rare cases where we kind of censoring any of the work or refusing to publish things because for fear of, you know, like being punished but we did actually publish in issue seven two comics that you know like we got in trouble for we got you know like called in and questioned and then there was a case against us and this lasted 
I think maybe three or four years, I can't even remember, but we lost the case and we paid a huge fine, like the highest, we paid $30,000 as a fine for supposedly uh, insulting religion, which obviously, and, and enticing, you know, like religious uh, uh, strife or whatever. So this was a this was a huge blow, but happily, I mean, I'm I'm so happy that we actually survived this because of you know like the support of our network of artists and readers and you know like the comics community at large, we were able to actually survive and you know come back stronger. And as we like to do in the curator every week, we have a lovely recipe for you, and this time from the CEO of one of the UK's leading meal delivery services, Casper Rose. Let's see what he has in store. Hi, my name is Kaspar. I'm the CEO at Fresh Fitness Food. Fresh Fitness Food is the UK's leading bespoke nutrition company. We deliver all of your meals ready to eat across the country. Right now, I'm going to teach you through voice, which is interesting, how to make one of our favorite recipes. And it's also something that I both eat from our menus and make myself on the weekends or often after a busy day at work. So we are gonna make a roast salmon with a zesty cabbage slaw with a slow baked sweet potato. So first thing you're going to do is make sure that you've got all the ingredients. You'll need a very small sweet potato for one or a large one for two. You'll need a piece of salmon, roughly 120 to 150 grams, some rapeseed oil for roasting the salmon. You'll also need a Savoy cabbage. That is my favorite type of cabbage to make this with, but you could also make this with kale or any other kind of cabbage you want. You'll need a knob of ginger, a sprig of parsley, sprig of coriander, and a pinch of cumin, half teaspoon of honey, you will need one teaspoon of white wine vinegar, good quality if you have it, juice of half a lemon, some good quality olive oil, something that looks kind of green and says extra virgin on the front of it. And you will also need some salt and pepper. So first thing you're gonna do is turn the oven on to about 170 degrees. You don't wanna go super hot with this and just pop the sweet potato skin on onto a tray in that and then just forget about it. You could you know, have your shower if you've just got home from work right now, or you could even slow roast it on a lower temp and pop out for the rest of the ingredients if you needed. What you're then gonna do once you've got everything else in front of you is you will start with the cabbage. Finely slice it as fine as you can into a sort of slaw style, but really, really thin, as thin as you can. Pop that into a bowl, grate the ginger, mix that in. Chop up the parsley and the coriander, mix that in as well. Throw in the pinch of cumin. That adds some real kind of earthy flavors to the dish. Then add the half teaspoon of honey, the white wine vinegar, the juice of half the lemon, and a good splash of that olive oil. When you mix it in the bowl, I want you to mix it with your hands. And then I want you to kind of like squeeze and massage the cabbage so it sort of breaks down a little bit as it starts to absorb the acidic flavors. Make sure you season with some salt as well. Maldon is my preference on this. Next, set that aside, take your salmon, season up the salmon, skin side down in the pan, or just pop it in the oven next to the sweet potato if you'd prefer to have it baked. And that often means a little bit less oil when doing it. But skin side down in a hot pan with olive oil in it, leave it there for roughly two to three minutes until you start to see the edges start to cook from the base up. So it turns from that red to a lighter pink color. Once it's done that, you turn the pan right down, leave it for another three minutes, and then flip it over and finish each side for roughly 30 seconds to 60 seconds. That's all it will need. Then turn the pan off, head back to your cabbage, grip it tightly, mix it around a little bit more, and then pop it in the bowl. 
then go back to your salmon, pick it up with the tongs and put it flat side down, so skin side up next to the cabbage in the bowl. And then finally, head back to the oven and grab that sweet potato. You almost cannot overcook that sweet potato. You should have that sweet potato in the oven for at least, I'd say 45 minutes, all the way up to an hour, depending on how much you turn the temperature down. You could turn it down to even 130 and leave it in there for longer if you headed to the shops in the meantime. Pop that on your chopping board, slice it down the middle, and then pop it next to the salmon and the cabbage in your bowl. The sweet potato should be so soft that you're able to scoop it out and then on that fork, you're also picking up some delicious flaky salmon that should still be a touch pink in the middle. And then that really zesty ginger, lemon, white wine vinegar, acidic flavors of the salmon should just cut through the fatty salmon. Uh, and the soft sweet potato carbohydrate next to it should pair perfectly. Serve with a sauce of your choice. I usually go with some kind of tomato relish that's in the back of my fridge, or maybe just a bigger squeeze of lemon juice because the salad is very juicy. I hope you enjoy. And please do order from the Fresh Fitness Food menu this exact recipe if you do, or enjoy cooking it at home. It is healthy and nourishing and affordable. Thanks so much. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by Sana MP and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. Thank you for listening.